gets its name. So fathers, we are here under the fatherhood of God, and what a good God he is. Um, dads, I'm, I'm thankful for you. I've tried to catch you, if I haven't already, just to share Happy Father's Day. Um, it's, a, it's a really good day to celebrate fathers. Fathers are so essential to the well-being of our society and to the well-being of this church. I'm really glad uh, that we could celebrate Father's Day. But today's also Juneteenth. Juneteenth is America's most recent national holiday. And so we're taking this occasion this week to really celebrate black dignity and the gospel. I'm going to have a lot more to say about that, but you may think that's a weird thing for a white guy to talk about. And so I'm going to, I'm going to share a little. Brooke's like, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I feel that, trust me. Um, I'm going to give some reasons for that, but I've also asked a, a few guys to kind of help me out with this. Um, a couple of partners. Um, one is Breon Owens. At, um, he's going to share some reflections on black dignity in the gospel. And then uh, Jermaine, he's on our direction team. He's going to uh, just kind of lead us in a prayer um, about whatever the Spirit has put on his heart. And then I'm going to stand up and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. Okay. Um, so could you give us some grace today as we, as we try to speak to this really important topic, a topic that has gone overlooked and has been under assault for many, many years. Um, Breon? Okay, that's one, Mark. Good morning. Yeah, so Smith asked me to say some few words about uh, black dignity, and so I'm just going to kind of read from my experience, draw from my experience, and uh, go from there. So um, before I forget, I just want to give a little trigger warning. I will use the words rape trauma, PTSD, whiteness, and white Jesus. So brace yourself. Um, so as I prepared to write this, I thought about my grandparents and great-grandparents. Uh, they were not educated people in the sense of having formal education. Um, my grandparents on both sides had third grade education, so they didn't have the ability to articulate their thoughts or um, express their ideas in well in written form, so taking notes like during sermon time was something they didn't have the luxury of doing. Um, my great-grandparents could not read or write, and the generations before them, it was illegal for them to write, to read and write. Um, I am a descendant of enslaved African people from the west coast of Africa. Uh, my ancestors were abducted from their homeland, brought to America to work as enslaved labor for the economic wealth of their owners and ultimately this culture, country. They were stripped of their humanity and given the value of property to be bought and sold and to be used at their owner's discretion. Their physical, mental, and mental, uh, physical, mental, and emotional needs were never considered because if you're property, you're not human. You have no human rights. Um, my great-grandfather, he was a biracial man born before the Civil War. He was more than likely the product of rape between my great-great-grandmother and her owner. Her dignity was not upheld. As property, she had no control over her body. Someone else did. Uh, can you imagine just the trauma and the PTSD you would have to live with, and how do you cope with that? Uh, there were no mental health professionals back then, especially for enslaved people who were considered property. Uh, my ancestors were illiterate sharecroppers. They lived in, in the South, in Texas. That's where me and my wife are from. Um, they raised their family there in the South, and they were products of their environment and passed on the trauma they received down to the next generation, and so on and so on. Uh, survival has been the primary goal of my family till only a generation ago. My aunts and uncles were the first to graduate from high school. 
I'm the first in my family to graduate from college. Um, while these are important milestones for my family, um, while these are important milestones for my family, these have provided uh, opportunities to live a more comfortable middle class life. These could not have been could not have been achieved without the dignity of those who have gone before. They knew their worth as the, as the world failed to recognize it. They knew that dignity began with God and that you are created in the image of God, worthy of respect and love. They had the courage to love themselves enough to live out the dignity, the divine dignity boldly and courageously and unapologetically in the face of enslavement, poverty, segregation, lynchings, racism, microaggressions, injustice, and hate. My ancestors had dignity, had a dignity that knew that their future state would be better than their present state. They knew that if they continued to trust in God and live out the dignity granted to them by God, that he would come and help them, save them, from the societal woes, and if not them, then perhaps their children or generations after them. They understood social class and resources do not determine your dignity or God's love for you. They found the ability to love and embody joy while at the same time suffering from the hands of social injustice and hardship and discrimination. To find love where there is no reason for love and to find the spirit of God at work in the mundane and the ordinary. It is nothing less than miraculous. To know that God is for you and loves you even when treacherous taught that you're a descendant of Ham and therefore cursed and being enslaved as part of that curse. Understanding that European Jesus, the white Jesus that you're socialized to see was and is used as a weapon of colonization and white supremacy. Yet my ancestors' faith in Jesus was so real and so strong that in the toughest situations they could point to his healing, his comfort, and justice in their lives. It is upon their dignity I stand. God's divine dignity passed down generation to generation, from enslavement to Jim Crow and segregation to integration and mass incarceration. They are still we are still standing by the grace of God and will continue to stand and fight in the dignity in God's dignity until God's kingdom is here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, lastly, I just wanna share a poem that I wrote um, on how I think God sees uh, God's dignity in black culture. So I don't speak for all black folk. Uh, this is just my perspective and my experience. Making the best of the life you were given, even though the tools and resources were few, receiving the food scraps from those who saw themselves better as better you turned into a cuisine that made the soul better mental health was not an option from the wounding of a nation but you found healing through a beat that inspired not only you but the world to move its feet spirituals blues jazz gospel and soul r&b rock and roll hip-hop and neo soul are all your creations you created music and culture though you were originally stripped of yours on the voyage over. There could be no assimilation to white, though you tried with all your might. 
Your names, hair, body style, body type, skin, and diction will not comply. Some are in love with the idea of whiteness and what it can buy. Trying to escape the pain of wounds and racialized trauma, but God, he meets us there in the middle of the drama. Hiding in plain sight, he has been our physician and counselor, transforming hate and revenge into love and dignity within. We have put our hope in a liberating God, the same God that Moses trusted, who set the enslaved in Egypt free with the riches of those who once held them in captivity. We are a people hopeful for a better tomorrow, but know that life will usually get darker before the sun shines brighter tomorrow. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, um, thank you just for the spirit that's in this room right now. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your truth about us. It's hard to know what to pray about or for because it seems so heavy, so big, so large. We don't know really what to do. But we're thankful for the space to acknowledge that we don't know what to do. Thank you for the revelation that we don't have the answer. We don't have the healing, we don't have the balm, we don't have the soothing presence that only you can provide. As we take this small step in bringing our full blackness um, to people, to creation, help us to not lose sight of the greater goal reconciliation with you. We pray that we'll give our carries, words and worries and concerns to you and allow you to show us how to love ourselves, allow you to show us how to love creation, allow you to show us what it means to be filled with dignity and pride and to walk in the fullness of the confidence that you, we are walking on your promises, walking on your truths and walking with your strength. Give us that vision. Lord, send your kingdom quickly and Lord, be with us always. This is our prayer in your son's name, amen. Can we just honor Brian and show your appreciation? Thank you. Brian, that was awesome. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for the beauty of your words. So why is a white guy talking about this? Um, just a couple of answers. When I listen to my black brothers and sisters and when I read black authors, they over and over call me to action. And they say that black dignity is a core need. And I think it's time that the 
Christian church step in. Second reason is because there's been a theft of identity that has happened. I'll, I'll talk more about that in just a minute. But if the church was complicit in the theft of identity, it has to be part of the repair that happens. And as a, as a leader and a pastor and a preacher at a church, I think that falls on me. Another reason is because I think God has uniquely burdened me with something to say. Um, I've, I've been reading and listening a lot lately, and it's, it's kind of all built up into something worth, worth sharing. And so I want to share that with you today. Um, but really, this comes down to, the, for me, it's, it's about the gospel. And so what I'm talking about today is black dignity and the gospel. Um, I think this is a gospel issue because the erasure of black dignity is one of the major barriers to black faith today. Um, I'll, I'll share more about that. All right. Michael, um, I'm going to kind of walk through a few things here. This is, um, this is a man named Jack Yates. Jack Yates uh, lived in South Texas. He was actually freed, and he went back into slavery just because he wanted to be with his wife and children. He goes back into slavery in South Texas, and when, on June 19, 1865, when General Granger finally makes it down into South Texas, the last, the last enslaved people to actually kind of get the message of emancipation. You know, it wasn't that they hadn't heard about emancipation. They had heard. It's that the white slave owners said, you've got to come and get them. And so finally, at the end of the war, the Union general comes down and says, all slaves are free. And Jack Yates takes his family to Freedmanstown in Houston, Texas. And the first thing Jack does is plant a church, my man. <laughs> and he plants Antioch Missionary Baptist Church, and Antioch Missionary Baptist Church becomes this hub of black life in Freedmanstown. It's a place of salvation. It's a place of education. It's a place of liberation. But go ahead. There's this really strange scene that hangs in Antioch Missionary Baptist Church. Blue-eyed, white Jesus is in the stained glass windows. This is just a small, small thimble of the taste of the troubling presence of whiteness in the story of black Christianity. Go ahead. And June 19th, go on. Um, I lost my clicker, so I'm just going to be pointing at Michael. So, um, this, this really, like, is, I'm, I'm trying to capture how, how much white supremacy and whitewashing has happened, even up to this point. But really the point is that emancipation didn't restore it. Did you know in the year after Juneteenth, in the year after Juneteenth, in Texas alone, 800 black men and women were publicly lynched. In one state. In our city, in the year after the end of the war, in 1866, it's called the Memphis Massacre. There was a large white mob that was trying to run every black person out of town. They, they murdered 46 black people. They raped at least five black women, according to the Congressional Committee on this. And then they burned something like eight schools and four churches. Every black institution in the black community in Memphis was burned to the ground by a white mob for days and days. And then in the aftermath, of course, there's no justice. There was, there was no grand jury. There was no punishment. Emancipation did not restore black dignity. So how, you, you might say, how did we get to this point where this is normal? And the answer is the ongoing assault on black dignity and the eradication of black dignity that had already happened to justify slavery. Go ahead, Michael. Uh, Duke Kwan, in his, his book on reparations, he, he calls it the theft of identity. And he says it takes three forms. 
The theft of identity, it, it basically is like the as-you-go justification for how you could enslave people. And he says the first piece of the theft of identity is black animalization. Black animalization. Um, what that means is that there's something, they're like animalized humans at best, right? Um, he says they're, they're not fully human, and there's a lot of Christians, a lot of Bible readers who supported this view. They had the social status that Brian alluded to, basically of that of a horse. They could be owned, they could be used, they could be abused, and they could just labor in the land. The second piece of the theft of identity was black demonization. If the first was about the physical traits of black men and women, the second one is about the moral traits of black men and women. Partly, it's again, Brian alluded to, part of this was because the physical differentiation began to wane because of the frequent rape of enslaved women by white masters. And so if the physical attributes became less differentiated, then you had to come up with another line to justify white supremacy and slavery, and it was, it was black demonization. The blackness was dangerous. It had to be kept distant. It had to be controlled. It had to be locked up. The third piece is black infantilization. There's a physical capacity. There's a moral capacity. This one is about just a mental capacity because white people still wanted labor in their homes. They wanted somebody to cook and to clean. They wanted somebody to raise the kids. And if you emphasize demonization too, too much, and so this, this was all part of the theft of identity that had happened for centuries in, in this country. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. I'm going to quote a lot of black authors. It doesn't mean I agree with everything they say. Um, Coates, for instance, isn't a believer as far as I know. Most of the authors I'm going to quote are, are black men and women who are very much followers of Jesus. But Coates just puts this so well. He says, America was not achieved through wine tastings and ice cream socials but rather through the pillaging of life, liberty, labor, and land, through the flaying of backs, the chaining of limbs, the strangling of dissidents, the destruction of families, the rape of mothers, the sale of children, and various other acts meant first and foremost to deny, he's talking to black people, you and me, the right to secure and govern our own bodies. And so this pervasiveness of white supremacy has created a need to restore black dignity. Eric Mason, a pastor and scholar in Philadelphia, he says that this Dignity is a core need of African-Americans. Martin Luther King echoed this many years before. He says, the black man needs to be able to say, I am somebody, I am a person, I am a man with dignity and honor. He says, yes, we must stand up and say, I'm black, but I'm black and beautiful. This self-affirmation is the black man's need. It's the black man's need, listen to this, made compelling by the white man's crimes against him. I believe that the church must join in with the self-affirmation of black men and women, particularly because of the church's failures to do so in years past. Go ahead, Michael. Many times, this erasure of black dignity happened with biblical justification, as Brianna alluded to. For instance, the curse of Ham. The curse of Ham is a reading of Genesis chapter 9 and the sin of Ham, the, the shaming of his father Noah. And it says in Genesis chapter 9, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves. And so many Christians came to say that the plain reading of the text is that black people were under the curse of Ham and not only deserved slavery, but that's where they belonged. That was intrinsic to them. It was God's will, after all. It was done with biblical justification, but it was also done with Christian participation. Jamar Tisby is a, a Christian black 
scholar and historian. He wrote a book called The Color of Compromise. And what Tisby shows is that in every, in every era of American history, from the colonies up to today, the church has been even more than complicit in the erasure of black dignity. This is voiced well by Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells was, some of you are from her hometown, Holly Springs, Mississippi. She was educated at Russ College just down the road, and she lived a lot of her life here in Memphis. She would look around and say, where's the Christian church? She says, our American Christians are too busy saving the souls of white Christians from burning in hellfire to save the lives of black ones from present burning in fires kindled by white Christians. And so the church has lost its moral authority to speak about dignity and human dignity. Go ahead, Michael. This has led to an exodus of black faith. Tisby, he puts it like this. He says, it's, it's like a ship that runs aground on rocks and then it, its hull is taking on water. He says, Christianity has run aground on the rocks of racism and it threatens to capsize because it has lost its integrity. So many black men and women are searching for dignity and they're doing so outside the church because of the sins of the church. Eric Mason again, he says, the traumatic effects of white supremacy and the traumatization of blacks generationally, he says it makes it really challenging for them to assimilate into white culture and it, it's just really challenging to make sense of what he calls the mad experience called the United States of America. And so it's a disorienting experience that has led to an exodus of black faith. He says evangelizing in black communities is harder than ever. The black church used to be a central hub for black life, but that's no longer true. And he calls it one of the, the largest cultural shifts that African-Americans have seen in the last 50 years is happening right now. Why is this happening? Jerome Gay says, it's because of the white supremacy and the ongoing whitewashing of the faith. It's contributed to this false narrative that Christianity is a white man's religion. There's this growing sentiment, he says, among people of African descent, as well as people across the globe, that Christianity is a Western-created, European-influenced, white-owned religion of oppression. He says this narrative isn't true, it's false, but it is rooted in historical reality. And so many are leaving Christianity for religious alternatives, like black identity groups, the black conscious community, Nation of Islam, Hebrew Israelites, but they're not just leaving for black religious identity groups, they're also leaving for secular alternatives, for movements. These groups, they say, all agree that Christianity is not good for black people. That's not to say that many black people do not remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. But even those that remain faithful, few can do so without wounds and trauma and doubts about their place in the church. This is really the context of the sermon this morning. How's that for an intro? <laughs> and so today I want to affirm black dignity in four ways. With the image of God, the story of God, the story of Christianity, and the story of the American church. Okay, let's go first. Black dignity and the image of God. Christianity is the, is the basis for human dignity. Christianity is the basis for human dignity. Adam Coleman has an essay called Black Atheism, and he says black Christians are walking away from God at an alarming pace. Some go to religious alternatives, but many are signing off from religion altogether, instead claiming that God does not or cannot exist. But Christianity is actually the very basis for the dignity that black men and women are longing for. 
This comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In the context of Genesis 1, Genesis was most likely, many scholars say at least, written to an oppressed minority group living in a foreign land called Babylon. Babylon had their own creation stories about humanity. And Babylon's creation story said that if you weren't from the royal line or the priestly line, then you were made to be enslaved. But the claim of our scriptures, the Christian scriptures say, it, in a radical and revolutionary way then and now, that everyone is made in the image of God. That black men and women, along with brown and white, these include those descended from poor and criminals, and they include those descended from rich and royalty. Everybody is made in the image of our glorious God. Mason says, dignity is something we see in the Bible from the beginning. It's core to the creation narrative. But he says, when we refer to dignity, we are talking about God-invested value. Our dignity and value is rooted in God's creation of mankind. He says, self-value grows out of God's value. Does that make sense? Christianity is the basis for dignity. And many, many enslaved and formerly enslaved people understood this. For instance, Leonard Black. He says, is man to be considered a mere ox? To be bowed up and stall-fed? Has he not a mind capable of rising higher and higher in all that is expansive, pure, and holy? Has he not within him a spark of pure divinity, which when he is surrounded by high and ennobling influences, is fanned into a light so bright as to lead us to respond to the glorious truth that man is indeed made in the image of God? He says, do you talk of selling a man? You might as well talk of selling immortality or sunshine. Adam Coleman, in his essay, he illustrates... He says, say you're on a ship, and there's some, some issues with the boat. And they say, we've got to get some, rid of some weight here. I'll put it up to a vote. People in the room, you can either throw 25 chairs overboard or 25 people overboard. That's the scenario he poses. The reason he poses it is because in 1781, a ship called the Zong was sailing from West Africa to Jamaica. The ship went off course and the captain decided that they didn't have enough water and so they needed to get rid of some cargo. Thankfully, he thought, Captain Collingwood, the cargo is insured, meaning the black bodies and souls that were on board. The cargo is insured and so when we get back, I'll just file the insurance claim. And so they threw 131 Africans overboard to their death. When he got back, he made the claim and initially he was actually awarded the settlement. But after, after an appeal, the insurance company showed there's actually plenty of water on board when he got back. Coleman's point, he says, Christianity is not just the basis for human dignity, but he says human dignity is actually an argument for Christianity. He puts the argument like this. If God does not exist, then objective human value does not exist. If God does not exist, then objective human value does not exist. Objective human value does exist, therefore God exists. A little logic this morning. And so Coleman says that if you want objective dignity, you have to have an absolute God. There's no other way. And so if you agree with the abolitionists who say even the slaves have dignity, if you agree that Captain Collingwood was wrong, absolutely wrong with what he did on the Zong, he says, then our argument leads us to the biblical faith. Now, the image of God is this, it's the, the basis for dignity. And it draws attention that 
you know, some of you are like, I'm, I'm Latino, where do I fit in this conversation? <laughs> I'm, I'm Korean, where do I fit in this conversation? What the image of God shows is that it, it's actually a universal attribute of white and brown and black, of, of men and women and children. But out of that, I love how Carl Ellis says it. He says, ethnicity has beauty only as it derives understanding that we are in God's image. And this ethnicity has beauty, but it's a beauty that grows out of the, the, the shared dignity that we all have. One of the reasons that many black people are leaving Christianity and turning away from Christian faith is because of a desire for an identity-derived faith. This is what Zion McGregor says. He says they want some sort of connection to their own ethnicity or to their native land or to their African ancestry. And so with the rest of my time, I'm really trying to show that you don't actually have to choose. <laughs> that Christianity is itself, it, it's filled with African ancestry. If you want African ancestry, you don't have to look any further. All right, let's go to the second point. We've talked about black dignity and the image of God. Now I want to share black dignity and the story of God. Go ahead, Michael. This story begins with the calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, you may know this, means father of many nations. That's what his very name means. And in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, the Lord promises Abraham that he is going to be the father of many nations, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. This is an important point. Esau Macaulay puts this in, Reading While Black. He says, we need to be as clear about this as, as possible. When it comes to the question of black presence in the Bible, it's not a question of finding our place in someone else's story. The Bible is first and foremost the story of God's desire to create a people, and we are encompassed within that desire. From the beginning, God's vision included black and brown people. This really shows up next. Michael, go to the African sons of Israel. Yes. Did you know that God brought his people to Africa where they were actually in bondage in Egypt? But Joseph, one of the, the patriarchs, one of the children of Israel, he had two African sons. Okay, we're still good. And when those two African sons met their grandfather, Jacob, who, the, the, the father of Israel, whenever they met them, Jacob looked at them and he says, God promised me that I will make you a, a community of peoples. And so he says, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came here will be reckoned as mine. Did you know that Joseph's African sons became part of the inheritance in the promised land? precisely because Jacob knew that this was what God promised all along. Macaulay, he, he puts this really well. He says, African blood flows into, the, into Israel from the beginning as a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. God had African people in mind from the beginning whenever he designed his multi-ethnic family. But, of course, the true son of Abraham is not Israel. It's not Joseph. It's not Joseph's sons. The true son is Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, he is the true one who actually opens up the way for all nations to be reconciled to God. And do you know, in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, four out of the five women named are Hamites. They come from the people of Ham. The, the Savior himself comes into that story of the so-called curse of Ham, and he shows that God is actually a God of liberation, not bondage. And Jesus ministers to people like Samaritans, and he ministers to people like Gentiles, and he tells of the coming mission of God to all the nations of the world. And he says, at the end of his life, after he's resurrected, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. That means every nation on earth. And he says, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is a pretty big scope. How does this happen? 
Paul says it happened through the cross of Jesus who destroyed the enmity and broke down the wall that was separating people. Speaking of the cross of Jesus, do you know who carried it? An African man named Simon. Simon, Mark tells us, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. When Paul, stay with me if you can, when Paul was writing a letter to the the church at, at Rome, he names that Rufus. And he says, Rufus and your mom, she's like a mother to me too. Paul's never been to Rome. This church is one of the first churches that exists in Europe. Paul hasn't been there, but there's an African family. They may have been part of that launch team. It's theoretically possible that an African family helped actually bring the gospel into Europe. But of course, after Jesus, the mission goes global, and it goes global in Acts chapter 8. We read it in our reading. I'm going to come back to it at the end, but it's where the gospel goes to Ethiopia. Ethiopia at this time was understood basically as everything south of Egypt. It's in the words of Mason, a black African kingdom where Kandake, the, the mother queen, was used for the Nubian kingdom of Moreau. The gospel goes to African people in the first century. The Ethiopian eunuch brings the gospel back, but do you know what the Ethiopian eunuch was doing when he met Philip? He was already reading the prophet Isaiah and already reflecting on the God of the scriptures, which shows that there's a presence of of the scriptures and biblical faith long before even Jesus was born. God's story, of course, ends in the book of Revelation. John receives this apocalypse from the Lord, but it's wrapped up and it's sealed, and he can't open the scroll. And you know what John, he doesn't do? He doesn't go looking for a white man to open it. (laughs) He also doesn't go looking for a movement leader to open it. He doesn't say, I need somebody with a lot of power to open it. Instead, John just weeps. Who can actually crack the story of the ages that's, that's going to be unveiled? And then one of the elders in heaven comes to, to John as he weeps. He says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so then this song starts coming out in heaven. They call it the new song. And they start singing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why is he worthy? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. These distinct peoples, distinct cultures, and distinct languages are are everlasting. Macaulay says, at the end, we don't find the elimination of difference. We find that the very diversity of cultures is a manifestation of God's glory. When the black Christian enters the community of faith, she is not entering a strange land. She is finding her way home. Let's go on. We talked about the image of God as a basis for dignity for all humans. And we talked about how the story of God includes this amazing dignity of of black and brown and African people from the beginning. But the story of Christianity does too. The story of Christianity does too. Go ahead, Michael. And in the early church... Macaulay, he says this in a funny way. He says, historically, the claim that Christianity is European is fundamentally false. This can easily be proved by anyone with access to a history book and a map. (laughs) Okay. One of the early centers of Christianity was actually in Africa, in Alexandria, Egypt. But there are all these very prominent African theologians. I mean, like the most prominent theologians we're most likely African at this time. There's Tertullian, the apologist in the second century. There's Athanasius. Athanasius had this nickname, the Black Dwarf. Now, as offensive and ridiculous as that nickname is, it shows that he was a black guy. He was Athanasius, one of my favorite um, 
things by Athanasius. It's called Against the World. Athanasius Against the World. Because he lived as I, as I, in terms of faith, a minority of faith. Because everyone else was turning to Arianism and was rejecting the divinity of Jesus. But Athanasius was really the pillar that God used to, to maintain the orthodoxy of the church. It is hard to exaggerate the impact of Athanasius, and even more so, Augustine, who is also African. Augustine was the most influential leader for a thousand years, and still is read by many. I was talking to Mark Potter, who's reading Augustine's Confessions even right now. But it's, it's Athanasius, it's Augustine, it's Cyprian, it's Origen, it's Basil the Great, it's Gregory of Nazianzus, it's Gregory of Nyssa. All, all of these early church fathers are African. Early Christianity, go ahead, Michael, was deeply rooted in Africa and in Asia, in black and brown parts of the world, not Europe. Mason says, we must recover and highlight this fact that most of the pioneers of early Christian formation were not whites, but people of color. There's the Nubian kingdom, which is in southern Africa, which still has a presence in global Christianity. There's the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which has been around for about 1,500 years. Philip Jenkins, he's a historian, and he wrote a book called The Lost Christianities of the World. And what he shows, he says Christianity did indeed become European, but about a millennium later than most people think. And the reason it became European, he says, it's actually tied to, he said it wasn't a lack of zeal, it wasn't theological confusion, it was crushed in a welter of warfare and persecution from Islamic extremism. It was the rise of Islam in the Middle East and Africa that eliminated the Christians in those places. It wasn't that Christians just migrated to Europe. But go ahead, Michael. There's also a story of African Christianity today that is happening. The, the story of black and brown people, there's about six million Africans a year who are turning to faith in the Lord Jesus. And they're not doing it in places that were formerly colonized by whites. Instead, what Laman Sine, an African Yale professor says, and whose religion is Christianity, he says that it's in places where indigenous religions were strongest. He says there's an implicit conflict with the gospel and colonial priorities. In other words, African Christianity began to grow exponentially when it became clear that Africans didn't have to become Europeans to become Christians. They could maintain their culture and heritage, and the gospel gave them a distance to also critique it. This is the irony of a lot of white progressives today. The American church has made a turn toward progressive Christianity, but the African church holds on to traditional teachings. This is voiced by a Liberian at the most recent General Assembly for the United Methodist Church. He says, we know of no compelling arguments for forsaking our church's understanding of scripture and the teachings of the church universal. So please hear me when I say as graciously as I can, we are not He's talking about Africans. We are not children in need of Western enlightenment when it comes to our sexual ethics. In other words, you just want us to become white liberals? Pass. We'll stick with Jesus. And so Esau Macaulay says the Christian story, as a black man, he says the Christian story is our story too. The black man or woman in America who goes back to Africa looking to find their roots will be surprised to find many black and brown ancestors staring them in the face proclaiming that Christ is risen. Let's go to the last, last point here. We've talked about image of God. We've talked about the story of God. We've talked about the story of Christianity. And I think this is the most difficult, unfortunately. By the time I wrote all the other stuff, I just don't have as much time to fully reflect on, keep going, Michael, on this one. Black dignity and the American church. Now, I've really struggled 
for, I mean, for days with how to frame this section of black dignity because of the indignity with which many black Christians have been treated. And so I decided you can't go wrong with faith, hope, and love. In my mind, the story of black dignity and really the claim of black dignity is to look at black Christianity as a faithful remnant in the sickness of American Christianity. Many people would ask, why would people adopt the faith of their oppressors? I think that's debatable that that ever happened. In the early colonists, Tiffany Gill shows that many slaveholders were proud that few slaves had been baptized. You see, they, wanted, they refused to let their slaves listen to Christian teaching and preaching. They introduced and twisted the scriptures. Have you ever heard of the slave Bible? The slave Bible is basically the scriptures stripped of anything of the liberating God that is actually in it. There's not an exodus in the slave Bible. But what this shows is that it's actually something fundamentally different. If you have to start altering the core text, you're not doing the same thing. Frederick Douglass, I think, saw the difference. A former slave, he says, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good and pure and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad and corrupt and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love, Douglas says, the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religions of this land Christianity. Do you see? They're saying, it's not that we bought into the, the faith of our slaveholders, the faith of our oppressors. The first celebration of Juneteenth was a, a parade that went to a church. And at that church, they did not praise their former slaveholders. They praised the God who liberated them. The Christianity in America was a faith that resisted black men and women. But black Christianity is this faithful remnant. Andrew Bryan is a pretty good for instance here. Andrew Bryan was a former slave who started a gathering. Um, and hundreds of black men and women started coming. He purchased his own freedom and he planted the African Baptist Church. It was the first black Baptist church in the United States. He went on to plant many more churches led by black men. But Tiffany Gill says that enslaved people, even those with permission to attend Brian's services, were stopped and harassed and whipped and jailed. Brian also was assaulted and imprisoned. Why? Because they wanted to worship Jesus Christ and they wanted to proclaim this gospel. You see the inherent resistance, the, the distance between these things. The faith of our black brothers and sisters throughout American history is a marvel. Many times it's called the miracle of the black church. Shar Walker says the African-American church is a miracle. My people clung to the same God my people were taught had made them less than human. And the black church shows us a faith that announces that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Black Christians, can, let me just say this. When you see hypocrisy in the church, run to the cure. <laughs> and the cure is Jesus Christ. The second piece of black dignity in the American church is hope. 
I think that black Christianity is a hopeful remnant in the secularization of American Christianity. There's a, a black man in the 1940s named Howard Thurman who was lecturing at Harvard University. He was doing it on the Negro spiritual, the, the music and the songs of the slaves. At the time and still today, many criticize black faith for all their talk of glory and heaven in the future, but the criticism was that it made them too docile. What they really needed was political action. Thurman says this, the facts make clear that this sung faith did serve to deepen the capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering, but it taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and then to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment with all its cruelty could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. It was hope. It was hope in God's justice because they knew that slaveholders would answer. And they knew that they would be vindicated. Their hope was not just in the present. Their hope was in the future. They knew that justice would roll down like waters. They knew it would happen. To them, this quality of life Thurman says, was insistent fact because of that which deep within them they discovered of God, his far-flung purposes. To know him was to live a life worthy of the loftiest meaning of life. That's where the dignity is. Their hope affirmed their dignity. Now, at Harvard, one author says, now, I'm glad you get a lot out of your spirituals, but if you really get a chance to go to a really good school, you'll learn that this life is all there is, and there really isn't any heaven or anything that will make up for all the suffering here, and there isn't a judgment day that will put all things right. But we still want you to have all your hope and fearlessness. You're like, no thanks, I'll pass on that. <laughs> give, me, give me the hope. But their hope did fuel their acts of love. This is the last piece that I want to talk about, and then I'll try to quickly, give us something practical. Black Christians were a holistic witness in the fragmentation of American Christianity. They preached the whole gospel as they were presented distorted gospels. They preached the gospel for the whole person even as they were denied personhood. They preached the gospel for the whole world even as they were excluded from the people of God. They called for justice, they called for social action, they were a truthful witness in the world. And I believe that the Lord has sustained black faith to be a, an important corrective to American Christianity. All right, I'm gonna try to say something a little practical. Can I give three points? You're like, you always do, okay. Uh, all right, kind of put these together. What would this look like for, for this church, for Oikos and for your family and for your table? Um, I'll share for me. Um, what this means for me as a, as a white, white guy, uh, it's a prayer. I think the Lord has burdened me with a desire to see multi-ethnic families of faith all around the city and for Oikos Church to be a multi-ethnic church. And I'm praying for that. Um, you use this phrase too, Brian, that it might be in Memphis as it is in heaven, that it might be at Oikos Church as it is in heaven. Um, Tisby, he says, Christians have been mandated to pray that the racial and ethnic unity of the church would be manifest, even if imperfectly in the present. Christ himself brought down the dividing wall of hostility that separated humanity from one another and from God. 
He says, reconciliation across racial and ethnic lines is not something Christians must achieve, but a reality we must receive. Memphis has black and brown and white Christians. We need the church to demonstrate that reality. I'm praying for this. Secondly, a culture of honor. Dr. Arkandria Owens, a special, she specializes in racial trauma and she consults with groups. We just call her Candy here. She gives a couple of important guides for this, what a culture of honor could look like in a group trying to step into this. One of the most important things I, I took from her remarks was to honor the impact over the intention. Um, actually, by the way, if you're married, same thing. Uh, Kelsey and I were using this language as we're sorting through, let's call it an intense conversation this past week. But to honor the way that you impact people rather than just the way that you intend to. And most of the time, this will look like apologizing for impact even without your intention. Candy says, connect meaningfully. What better way at Oikos than to connect meaningfully around a table? To open up your home and to share your table. And if your table begins looking more and more multi-ethnic, like the kingdom of God in Memphis, then I think that can start to happen here in, in our fellowship. It starts with prayer, leads to a culture of honor, and then the last one I want to share is uh, just an identity practice. There's two questions in, in this text, and really this is kind of to send with you. Um, black, brown, or white, I think this text has a lot of power. Uh, in, in the last month, Acts 8 was a large part of what the Lord used to draw my daughter to himself in baptism. Um, this, isn't, this isn't just for... Um, people with African ancestry. The two questions are this, how does Jesus identify with me? And how does Jesus identify me with him? How does Jesus identify with me? And then how does Jesus identify me with him? Let's just look at this text. Michael, I'm gonna go fairly fast here. We're gonna to have to skip some of this. Philip, he catches up to the Ethiopian eunuch an important official in the treasury of Kandake in the southern black kingdom of Ethiopia. We know this man because of his social exclusion. We know him as a castrated man. He's a, a worshiper of God, but as a worshiper of God, the book of Deuteronomy says that if you have been cut off or crushed, then you actually can't join in the assembly of God's people. And so this man who's been on the outside looking in and he comes from Africa. He's not an ethnic Israelite. He has this social exclusion that he looks on and he's like, I want to be in. Go on, Michael. Keep going. Uh, keep going. I said, I'll just send this with you, okay? Uh, he's, he's reading Isaiah the prophet, and this is how every evangelistic encounter, <laughs> you know, if they're already reading Isaiah, you're on pretty good terms. But this is what he's reading. The passage of scripture the eunuch was reading, it says, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In hum his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants, his children? For his life was taken from the earth. In Hebrew, it's literally his life was cut off. This man knows what it feels like to be cut off, right? There's a play on words happening here. I hope you get it. I'm not going to go further into it. But then he's reading about this man in Isaiah 53. If you keep reading Isaiah 56, there's this really amazing hope. 
to the eunuchs, to the eunuchs one day in the future who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give my house and within my walls a monument and a better name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's what he told to the eunuchs. You want a name that will not be cut off? This is how it happens. And this guy's he's reading this text and he says, can you please tell me? It's this man talking about himself. He's talking about, I want to know this man because this man knows my injustice. This man knows what it's like to be on the outside looking in. He knows what it's like to have no children. He knows what it's like to be cut off. Not in the same way, but he knows me. There's, how does he identify with me? He, it says, go ahead, Michael. It says that Philip began with this passage of scripture and he told him the good news about Jesus. And the good news about Jesus is that he identifies with me. He identifies with us fully. Is it still on? Okay. Okay. Don't, don't lose this here. He identifies with us in all points. He's tempted as we are yet without sin. He identifies with our humanity and that we are flesh and blood. He identifies with our suffering. Macaulay, he says to black, black believers, he says, Rome and the antebellum self may not be twins, but they are definitely close relatives, maybe even siblings of the same father. He knows what that is like. He identifies with us, but then he identifies us with him. He identifies us with his victory. He identifies us with his resurrection. And the good news about Jesus is that he gets it in every sense, but then he conquers it in every sense. And the hope of the Lord Jesus is that resurrected black and brown bodies will be joined into this multi-ethnic family of Abraham. When God finally calls the dead to life, he calls them to life with their ethnic identity intact. Where all nations and tribes and peoples and languages are joined in. And we cry out now, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the world and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. We cry how long, but he will take it. Macaulay says, what do black Christians do with the rage that we rightfully feel? He says, we send it to the cross of Christ. The cross breaks the wheel. My hope is not in the strength of our nation. My hope is not in the political parties and institutions of our country. My hope is not in the whitewashing of the sins of the church. My hope is in the goodness of God. I believe in a God who hates injustice and he loves mercy and righteousness. I believe in a God who is making all things new. I believe in a God who has promised to put all things back together. And I believe in a God who keeps his promises. Three things. Hold on to our good God. Hold on to our hope and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And hold on to the people of God, flawed as we are. Would you stand and let me pray over you? God, you are good all the time. And the gospel is true. And the church is your family. Give us the strength to persevere. We praise you, O God of liberation, O God of victory and conquering. Come quickly. In Christ's name, amen. Would you get your kids? God bless you.